Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. So, big week. I should say that we are recording this on uh, June 7th, which is like two weeks into the... The protests. Protests that have been going on following George Floyd's death. There have been big protests here in uh, in Madison, where I live. And I'm in Richmond, Virginia, so... Yeah. <laughs> yes. We can only... So make. I saw some photos of uh, young black girls who are ballerinas yes. posing in front of the, yeah. the Lee Memorial, which had yes. been heavily... Graffiti. Painted. Yes. Yeah. I will say the interesting thing about this in Richmond, actually, of course, is that this is, I mean, all of this is a continuation of the Civil War and civil rights, obviously. And the Civil War is already a continuation of the fact that, you know, the founders didn't abolish slavery. They decided to sort of kick that down the road for someone else to deal with. But, you know, so being in Richmond, of course, um, a couple years ago, famously... The Charlottesville protests, this is actually a few years ago now, right? I think three. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Charlottesville protests, yeah, which happened right around the time we moved to Richmond. That was the weekend that I was in the hospital having a baby. Aha, so you know exactly <laughs> remember when that was. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that happened. And of course, famously, right, a woman was killed. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of shook a lot of people at the time. And there were... Um, Similar reactions, right? There were a lot of uh, marches yeah. sort of in solidarity and so on. But um, the at that moment, there were a lot of, you know, white supremacist groups that were sort of galvanized. And mm-hmm. they presumably, this is my thought, this is just my personal opinion, that one of the reasons they had chosen Charlottesville to begin with is, of course, it's the home of Mr. Jefferson's school, which is UVA. Uh, University of Virginia, but it is also very small by comparison, right? Um, so it's symbolic, right? Thomas Jefferson's sort of place, but small. So a large group of white supremacists can feel sort of comfortable, presumably sort of taking it over. Sure. Richmond, former, of course, capital of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. not so small, <laughs> less small, <laughs> bigger is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. And so maybe white supremacists, not that they don't have plenty of sympathizers still in the general area, but Northern Virginia from DC down to Richmond is famously very, very, very blue. It has swung the state in all Mm -hmm. recent presidential elections. And this is going back, right? Obama, as well as the most recent, 2016. And this past election actually managed to flip the rest of the state. And that may actually have been partly because of white supremacists gathering in Virginia. It sort of scared people. Mm-hmm. They did then try to come to Richmond, and it did not work out so well for them. Not as many people came, and it ended up being kind of a tiny little gathering, and the police were sort of there to protect them from the protesters against them. And so that <laughs> sort of petered out. But it was this yeah. moment that really sort of, you know, <laughs> was noticeable. Mm-hmm. Richmond, in a lot of ways since then, has been looking at changing some things. Another thing that happened that same summer that this was going on was Richmond unveiled a statue to Maggie Walker, who is an incredibly, amazingly awesome African-American woman. Her house is now owned by the Park Service. 
Oh, nice. Um, her family preserved it until the 70s when the Park Service bought it. And if you go, some nice park rangers will lead you through and tell you all about mm-hmm. her and her family. Um, she's just incredible. I mean, she was friends with all the sort of famous people at the time. Um, like Booker T. Washington, right? All these people. I mean, she's just... Yeah. She was really prominent human being. <laughs> right. In general. But also in the South and in Richmond, which, of course, the capital of the Confederacy. Again, an important city in the South. Um, and she is one of possibly the first black women to have started a bank. Mm-hmm. Um, she ran a newspaper. You know, she was did all of this stuff. Um, so she was born just after the end of yes. the Civil War, yeah. right? Like uh, 1864, mm-hmm. died in 1934. Yeah. So yes. that era. Yeah. So she, I mean, and of course, this is a time when um, famously after the Civil War, Reconstruction started and was crushed because Lincoln was assassinated. <laughs> and so thus, right, the lessons of the Civil War aren't learned by the South. And we get segregation, Jim Crow, the rise of the KKK. And there are eras, though. There are always eras where things become worse. Um, and she definitely saw a few of them, right? The 1890s, I believe, is when the Lee statue went up. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, famously, the 1920s was another moment when all this stuff happened. And a lot of statues, yeah. right, a lot of statues that weren't put up in the 1890s got put up in the 1920s, right? None of them are put up right mm-hmm. after the Civil War. Um, or almost none of them, right? Very few. Of course, like tombs and actual commemorations of people who died. Um, but the statues that we sort of argue about today, should they come down, these are put up at later dates to reinstall white supremacy. Um, and so Richmond has been working on this for a while. And so this week, the council voted unanimously, unanimous for the first time, um, to take down all of the Confederate statues on what is known as Monument Avenue. Um, and it seems, of course, the unanimous vote is in direct response to what's going on now. But this has been coming right. for a very long time. Um, they have been looking for an excuse. And actually, the Virginia legislature passed a law that will go into effect July 1st that was meant to give everyone a process for going through with this. Mm-hmm. And now it's almost, you know, maybe they won't really need it on some level. <laughs> you know, the governor has said that the least statue should just come down as soon as possible. Um, and the question becomes right. more what will go up in place of these monuments. Interestingly, Kendall Wiley created a brilliant statue. We're going to have a lot of images in this episode, by the way, to listeners. So we're going to footnote all of those. Hopefully you can go to the website and see them or just Google yeah. some of the things on your phone as we say it. Um, but Kendall Wiley, he's a brilliant, brilliant African-American artist. Was he the one who painted the Obama portrait yes. with all the leaves? Um, and he actually fits yeah. brilliantly into our conversation because he uses this is going to be a conversation about icons and iconography. And he uses it like mm-hmm. nobody's business. Um, so we'll talk about some of those when we get there. But he created the statue that is absolutely meant to sort of parallel <laughs> these monuments. It's a brilliant brown statue. And right now it's in front of permanent exhibition in front of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, which is a wonderful museum, the VMFA. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's some questions suddenly, because at the time that he did it, the... Um, idea behind it and the idea for sort of for the museum was that it would essentially serve as a counter <laughs> to all of these monuments because the museum is just off of Monument Avenue basically. Right. But at the time it did not seem possible that you could actually put this there. Right? But maybe now it or something similar, right, 
will in fact replace yeah. all these monuments. So we may have gotten to that point. Um, but it's been coming really for a while. You know, these things are never sudden. Yeah, I think I just found a picture of the of the statue. It's called yes. Rumors of yeah. War. It's based on a painting he also It features, yeah, a guy mm-hmm. on a horse. And I believe he's intended to be yes. African or African-American based yep. on his hair, which is pretty yes. cool. Nice, dynamic horse, like... Oh, yeah. Trotting. Kind of raising one foot. Yeah. yeah. You know, battle horse. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good statue. My professional yes. looking at statues opinion. Um, yeah, it was unveiled in Times Square and sat there for a while, and we saw it there, um, and then moved down here for permanent exhibition. Yeah. Nice. This is just, I mean, it just happened. It was got unveiled in Times Square being in September... I moved down here in December. Wow. Yeah. That's that what is doing. recent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right before the apocalypse <laughs> hit. All of this happened. Yeah. Yes. Um, the first of the yes. apocalypse. It's a sort of general ongoing, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, first comes the, sure. like, the zombie apocalypse, right? The disease. And then comes like all of the social unrest. Yeah, I guess. Where you have to restructure things and figure things out because, you know... And <laughs> Yeah. I was wondering, you know, it po- in my in my poetic work I've been wondering when we're going to get to the Mad Max portion of yes. things where when resources are scarce and we have to <laughs> we all have to like yeah. pack our belongings into um right. wheelbarrows and walk to right. California. Uh, I, I mean, guess. I guess probably Canada, sure. honestly. Given where you are but, in Madison, that's probably the best bet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm a lot closer to um, Canada. <laughs> where would we go? Yeah. Jeez. Ooh. I don't know. After they blow it. If you can make it to the Great Lakes. That's true. Yeah. Right. You know, right. people can go across those on a boat. <laughs> it's more of a trek north, though, famously, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but all of this is actually a great way of introducing what we are talking about today. And this is why we are talking about it. We are talking about icons and iconography. This wasn't necessarily going to be our next, um, but yeah. I had, I teach a unit on this in class. Um, and so, and one of my students asked me about it this week and... Yeah, I thought it was like a perfect, you know, we should talk about this. Um, so first, sort of the background, yeah. right? Um, Acon is Greek, mm-hmm. and then, of course, turns into Latin icon. Um, it means a likeness or an image. Uh, and today... Hmm? So I've always heard the word icon in yes. a pre-computer era as referring to <laughs> the pictures of... Jesus and Mary and various saints that they make in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yes. Well, so any... They're very sort of stylized yeah. gold yes. leaf but it's not just things. Eastern. Anything is an icon. We tend... When we say the word icon today, we either tend to mean specifically religious icons, which are those stylized pictures of religious figures, or mm-hmm. we mean just a general sense, right? Anyone who's famous, <laughs> right? Um, or anything that's famous, you know? So, um, I don't know. Um, Beyonce is an icon. Mm-hmm. Now, she might be also a capital I icon as sure. well, to be fair. <laughs> right? Um, but, right? But <laughs> you sort of point, have to work yeah. up to that, right? Um, to the point where what's interesting, of course, about, for example, Beyonce, um, is that she has videos like Deja Vu where she... Um, parallels the banana dance by Josephine Baker. That Josephine Baker is absolutely an mm-hmm. icon with a capital I, right? In that sense, we don't just mean a likeness or an image, which is where the world originally comes from and why religious, um, depictions are called icons because 
that's been the word for them for like thousands of years, right? <laughs> um, but yeah. capital I icon, what we're talking about today, is essentially a representative symbol. So especially of a culture or movement, that's the OED, uh, basically mm-hmm. a symbol that represents an idea or a concept, right? A peace sign is an icon, right? A smiley face okay. is an icon, right? It represents something that goes it goes far beyond just a picture's worth a thousand words. Um, sometimes it's something that really can't be put into words at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So the importance of an icon. Now, Beyonce paralleling the banana dance of Josephine Baker and Deja Vu. Um, Josephine Baker is absolutely an icon and became one in, you know, for numerous reasons, but she essentially, right. This African-American female performer who heads to France because essentially she's not going to get a chance in the States to do what she can do in France. However, right. um, even in France, and despite her fame and all of the things, right, where she does become sort of this iconic performer, um, she creates things that are absolutely hers, right? But a lot of them also do use stereotypes about African-American culture or just African culture, mm-hmm. right? There's this sort of... Um, dismissal of the differences between African-American and African culture. And so her sense of the way she used those stereotypes is something that has definitely complicated her legacy. Right? Is she commenting on them? Is she sort of embracing them for the entertainment of white audiences? These are sort of questions. But what she was and who Mm -hmm. she became, right, the reason she's now a capital I icon is that she absolutely unquestionably walked her own path, right? And if you hear her name, Mm -hmm. you don't have to know exactly what she looked like. You don't have to remember her dances. You just know if someone mentions Josephine Baker, she stands for this sort of astonishingly fabulous, incredible African-American woman who thrived at a time when that was difficult, right? Who was powerful and forceful. Yeah. Right? So she stands for all these incredible things. Um that go far beyond really even who she was as a person and what she actually did, right? which might be a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so Beyonce in using that right in her video is connecting herself to this legacy, right? Of African-American women who are incredible, but also acknowledging the ways in which being an African-American woman who is entertaining what might be a largely white audience, no matter how many people mm-hmm. of color are fans of Beyonce, just as many are undoubtedly white, right? She's very widely popular. Um, And so what does that mean? And what are her responsibilities, right? What does that legacy say? Um, So it's a really sort of interesting thing that she does in that moment. So this is sort of what we're talking about, is this use of icon, of iconography, to communicate. So I'm going to bring up some of the texts Mm -hmm. I use in class. One of my favorites is Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Yay! All right. Yes, it is. It's a classic. Um, And he defines an icon as, quote, any image used to represent a person, place, thing, or idea. Oh, so you know who's really good at that is uh, G.B. Trudeau. Oh, of course. Right? Yes. Who um, famously, (laughs) yeah, he would draw actual icons for the presidents. Um, I think he draws Trump. Yes, but, but that is because you know, he's always Clinton drawn Trump. was. Oh, he's drawn yeah. Trump for decades. Yeah. I first 
found out who Trump was in a book that our our grandparents had a collected Trudeau of like the 80s. <laughs> and yeah. I read that book cover to cover. It's how I learned what happened in the 80s. I was technically alive for it, of course, but like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> not right. super aware. Who could, could not watch the news really. at the time. Yeah, around contra no. was a word I recognized, but you know. Um, yeah. A term I recognize. So... I do remember you telling me that Reagan was no longer the president, and it was, like, probably 1990 right. or something, and I was like, but it's in my social studies <laughs> yes. book. Oh, American <laughs> education. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it ends with Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> now I think that's relatively up to date for some oh, of those God, school yes. systems. But, I know. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. Those were always wrong. I mean... Yeah. At least usually. Like, I never saw a class that actually has the book that was relevant, right? But, um. No. But yeah, yeah. exactly. And I learned, but I learned all of that from this collected Doonesbury. <laughs> and one yeah. of the things I learned about was Trump, mm-hmm. who at the time was just a rich brat from New York, basically. Right? Yeah. Saying things in the news. Yes. He had a and board game. We might actually have a copy of Trump the Board Game, sort oh, of as wow. a curiosity item. Yes. It's like a bad ripoff of, like, Monopoly or Life yeah. kind oh, of sure. thing. But, I mean, the funniest thing, and I remember I learned um, I learned a lot of stuff, but um, at some point, I mean, the idea of, you know, everything covered in gold and, I mean, but the sort of fakery of it and the hypocrisy of it, mm-hmm. um, this was yeah. all part of that characterization, has always been. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so the weird thing that then he didn't change it. <laughs> because it, it it's no. one of his most, I mean, aside from all the original cast, mm-hmm. one of his longest standing mm-hmm. characters, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Which is so yeah. bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, there's a moment, I don't know if it's his boat or something, and he's telling someone how he wants it painted. And he's like, I can't remember what it is. Is it books or it's something, whatever. But he's like, I want it all painted. You know, but I wanted to look real. What's that painting technique where, you know, you make it look real? Right. Trump boy. <laughs> Which, of course, is a play then on his name. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So anyway, so all of this, which is why I learned what that was. But anyway, so all of this is part of the original Doonesbury. You know, that was 30 years before he became president. But yeah. yes, you're absolutely right. He yeah. draws icons for the president. Um, which is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I think Clinton yes. was a waffle. Someone took a bite out of him once. <laughs> uh, George W. Bush was an asterisk yeah. in a cowboy hat, if I recall. I think Dick Cheney was a bomb. Was that who was the bomb? Ooh. I will have to actually go back and look. It's the bomb. Like, yeah. I have, I think I have a collected, like, a giant yeah. coffee who table yes. book of, uh, um, yeah. And then, of course, he has some characters who are who are icons, who are supposed to be, um, like Mr. Butts for yeah. advertising when lead when his lead yes. character, like Doonesbury, is advertising for cigarettes. And that's the whole Philip Morris, now Altria commentary and all of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, Newt that's, Gingrich that's was a bomb. Yes. <laughs> Dan yes. Quayle was a feather. Remember oh, Dan Quayle? From Indiana. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Indiana. Yeah. You've given us quail and pence. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Illinois, on the other hand. Uh, Schwarzenegger Lincoln, was a groping Obama. hand. Tammy Duckworth. Yeah. Carol Mosley Braun, first female African American senator. Anyway, sorry, just comparing Indiana to Illinois. 
Haha. <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously yeah. partial to Illinois, but I'm just <laughs> oh, saying. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. But yes, so the idea of the icon, right? It conveys something that goes beyond words, right? Um, we see a waffle. You don't have to, you know, it conveys all of these ideas at once, right? Um, yeah. That go beyond sort of calling someone wishy-washy or saying you can't choose or, right? It just... There's a lot of stuff that's difficult to put into words and would take a few paragraphs instantaneous with an icon. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So McLeod talks about this. This is exactly what cartoonists do. And even outside of the sort of actual cartoon world, right? So if you think of graphic novels that are beautifully drawn, art makes use of iconography. Obviously, it has to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some interesting things like... I mean, this turns up a lot in of Renaissance art, where you have very carefully posed yes. pictures with uh, people holding a lute or yes. a sword or standing next to a picture yeah. of a ship to symbolize something about their particular um, wealth. Yeah, and this is actually, so back to Kendall Wiley, um, his Obama portrait has um, icons from Obama's past, so the, flo- the flowers in the background all come from sort of aspects um, of his life, so, you know, like, sort of Chicago and Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kendall Wiley is very, very interested in iconography and the ways in which it communicates. So iconography means both the use of icons to communicate, which could be something complicated, like a Kendall Wiley painting, or something like just you texting with emojis to a friend, <laughs> right? It also means, of course, the study of how icons are used. So... Um, Wiley has a whole series of portraits um, that he did of men. He would sort of pass someone on the street and say, do you want to come pose for me? And he would take these pictures of them and then draw them in the style of um, basically sort of Renaissance or Enlightenment portraits. Um, And so Rumors of War sort of comes Hmm. from that series, right? He has people... Um, and, you know, a lot of times you recognize the actual portraits that he's drawing on, right? Because mm-hmm. they're very famous. They are iconic, right? They're instantaneously recognizable, especially sort of right war heroes. Like you said, the sword, the horse, right? These are iconic images of war heroes. You might not, you know, a lot of people also would say yeah. immediately recognize like that's Napoleon or that's whoever. But even if you don't do that, you know, immediately that person's a war hero. Right. This is and this is iconography yeah. that is global. Someone on a horse with a sword anywhere in the world is a war hero. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um and it, yeah. there's this incredible portrait uh from about sixteen fifteen mm-hmm. of a a guy who was a samurai who happened to travel to Italy on a um a mission like a trade mission, really, trying to open trade, I believe, between Japan and Italy, Makes which sense. was kind of weird and you know he's posed Mm -hmm. like in his in his uh his hakama and his you know his jacket with his sword sticking out and like his dog sitting nobly next to him like it is exactly the same you can tell that he if you have no idea who this guy hasakura is you look at it you go yep yeah he is a samurai yes and that's right and also hunting dogs yes (laughs) yes um but that's the thing, right? And the idea of replacing these famous white figures with young men of color, right? And not famous young men, although he has also, of course, done portraits of famous people, like the president. Um, 
but specifically, you know, people who are sort of ordinary every day. Um, and the idea that they mm-hmm. deserve um, to be there. Right? Yeah. Um, and so that sense, which is a really sort of important aspect of iconography, because there are the ways in which it is sort of used. <laughs> um, but then once an yeah. icon exists, um, it can be played with in all sorts of ways. Right? It can be recontextualized. It is worth noting, and this is one of the things I sort of talk about in class, that icons accrue meanings but don't shed them very easily. Mm-hmm. Which is why, for example, the swastika, which spent thousands, thou- like 5,000 years as a symbol of peace around the world in various places, you can find yeah. it all. It's most famous because where we get the word, right, from India, but, you know, exists in Native American culture. Yeah. You do. You still see it all over Southeast Asia. It yes. feels a little jarring, honestly. Yes, well, exactly. But that's the thing, right? If you are from a culture that still uses it, you sort of learn never to wear your necklace or whatever it is outside mm-hmm. of your immediate cultural context, right? Yeah. You don't wear it in Europe. You don't wear it in the U.S., right? And that sense of, you know, a f- it takes just a couple. It took a couple decades, not even, right, <laughs> to destroy. The meaning of that symbol in the West. Yeah. And so, and that's something, right? It's hard to undo those things. But there are ways then to recontextualize some things. Things that are not as obviously positive or negative, right? Um, A war hero, right, on horseback with a sword isn't an automatically charged symbol, positive or negative. It depends on who the person is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you take a white guy, replace him with a person of color, you're commenting on that. This, of course, goes immediately to, as again, the monuments, right? Um, the problem with these monuments, they're not individually iconic, right? Um, it's not like the Statue of Liberty, right? The Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. is part of a genre of icon um, that's based on, you know, thousands of years, classical history, um, statues of gods and goddesses um, and entities, personified entities like victory, Right? Winged mm-hmm. victory. Nike. But the Statue of Liberty, right? She's part of that genre, which is iconic. Right? It's an iconic group as a group. You recognize yeah. those statues when you see them. But Liberty herself is individually iconic. Right? You see her, and she conjures up a huge, complex context of ideas and concepts. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah. What the U.S. is supposed to stand. Right? All of these things. Yeah. I think in the last couple of years, we've all seen especially cartoonists um, commenting on Trump's policies, anti-immigrant, you know, um, anti-person of color by drawing the Statue of Liberty in various, you know, like with her hands cuffed or crying or various, you know, postures like that. The most recent iteration is Trump kneeling is trump in the place of the cop and lady liberty in the place of george floyd yeah okay yeah, i did see that one yeah which is a meat mm-hmm. that's an icon right that is an i but it's also it's iconography right it's the use of a few icons that iconic moment that is now immediately right iconic um and the icon of lady liberty right definitely it would take more than a thousand words to communicate what that picture does instantaneously, yeah. right? So that's that's how icons function. Um, 
So the monuments on Monument Avenue in Richmond, you know, unless you're from Richmond, you don't immediately know exactly who each mm-hmm. of them is. You know, or if you're a historian <laughs> or whatever, but you know. You might sort of vaguely recognize some of the names, I think, but, you know. Oh, well, when you, that's my point, though, right? But you, when you see the names, of mm-hmm. course you know. But I just mean, like, looking at it from them afar. They're not famous statues in that sense. They're not iconic individually. Yeah. But as a group, you drive, you're, they're obviously all war mm-hmm. heroes. Sure. Right? And that's, of course, the problem, is that when you realize who they are, yeah. <laughs> these are not people who should yeah. be remembered with that iconography. Except for in Central Park, I don't think they usually put up, you know, statues of famous poets or whatever. Or you might get one right in your birthplace or something. I bet I would bet yes. money that there's a pic like a big statue of Walt Whitman somewhere, but you know. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But you know, we sh- we could. Yeah. Why not? I mean, Richmond Poe is actually from Richmond. He's famous cuz he died in Baltimore, but he's actually from Richmond. You know, we could have a giant statue yeah. of Poe. That would be great. <laughs> right. Arthur Ashe actually has a statue on Monument Boulevard, but it's much smaller. It doesn't look great from the back. <laughs> it's sort of famous, um, just the way it's posed that from certain angles it doesn't okay. look great. Um, it kind of looks like he might be, like, it doesn't really look like this, but the feeling of the way it looks from certain angles. He has his tennis racket up and he's teaching these children who are sort of kneeling at his feet. But just the general size, which is too small, and it looks from some angles like he's about to hit some oh, no. children with his racket. <laughs> yeah. And this is unfortunate. It's not, you know, but um, anyway, the sort of general point being, right, that they kind of tried, but not yeah. half-heartedly, right? Whereas opposed to the Maggie Walker statue is brilliant. It's a wonderful statue. Fantastic. Um, See, so just, you know, something like that. These things are possible, right? Kendall Wiley did a phenomenal statue. Pay more people like that to do things like that. Um, I'd like to have Carol Walker do a statue for us. I don't know. But um, anyway, so this idea, right? So icons, um, and this sort of brings up <laughs> one of the first things I go to when I when we're talking, having this sort of conversation about icons, is I start popping up images that you see on bathrooms. Hmm. Right? You get the little stick yeah. figure, and then the stick figure who's clearly supposed to be wearing mm-hmm. a dress, right? Because, you know, women wear dresses. Um, and then I go through this list where it's, you see, like, all the variations as places try to start figuring out how to make things more gender inclusive. Mm-hmm. So you might get a figure that's, like, um, half wearing a dress and half not. Yes. Right? I've seen those. Yes. And then you start to get ones that are the symbols. So it'll be, like, male, female, and trans mm-hmm. symbols, right? And sort of the Mars, Venus, you know, these iconic yeah. symbols for, like, male, female trans um but again right that is it's all defining and then the last one do you want to guess what the last most obvious thing is for bathrooms yeah i don't know think of what they're called in other languages like french oh a picture of a toilet or something yes absolutely (laughs) just a freaking icon Mm -hmm. you know a simply drawn icon of a toilet okay (laughs) That is what is behind this door, and if you are a person looking for that... Go there. Yeah. Go through this door. That works. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yay. Problem solved. I was going to say, in some other languages, it, like in Thai, the word is water room, right? Hong Nam. Yes. Well, and, water yeah, or right? From, in Chinese, yeah. I think it's like the, the room, the washing hands room. But yeah. 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 Everyone has different words for it, right? But that hilarious thing right of trying going through all these contortions to try and figure out like 
the gender of people or all genders. Sometimes it says like all gender yeah. restroom. We have those at like at okay, the co-op in like, Madison. <laughs> right. But then also like then it's in English. So what if how do yeah. you translate it? Right. An icon of a toilet takes care of everything. Yeah. Ignore gender. Right. Um, we assume in this case, right, that it can fit mm-hmm. a wheelchair. Right. That it doesn't need special. Um, but in that case, you could just put a chair next to yeah. it. Great. Just assume that people can figure out that if they need to use a bathroom, this is where they should go. Right. Yes. And so the ways in which an icon, it's just you have to figure out what is the right icon. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about defining gender. Get over yeah. it. Stop caring. Right? A toilet. <laughs> yeah. So, but this way in which, right, we use them to communicate, but also iconography itself can be very interesting and be sort of limiting. Mm-hmm. Right? Um it can do all sorts of interesting things. And so one of the things we talk about, right, are stereotypes, right? Because no matter what, that female sign, right, Venus, whether it's a symbol for Venus or the sort of stick figure wearing a dress, right, right? This the extent to which icons and stereotypes have interesting things in common, right? Um, because stereotypes like icons sort of draw on our desire to boil down complex ideas, right, and concepts to sort of an essence, mm-hmm. right? So the essence of a bathroom is the toilet. Right. Yes, that's a good call. Um, <laughs> uh, but the idea that somehow the essence of woman is dress, which, of course, it isn't. It totally depends on right. your society and your right. culture and your time, right? Um, so famously, like, the classical Greeks thought that the Persians were barbaric because they wore pants, yeah. Right? This was a sort of yeah, ridiculous... Why would you do that? <laughs> um, yes. Decadent outfit. Yeah. Pants. I believe um, in ancient China, women tended to wear pants, right? And men tried tended to wear what we would conceive of as dresses. They wouldn't have thought yeah. of it like that. More, you know, or robes. Well, right. Right. Well, exactly. Things, you know, Scottish yeah. kilt. Um... Yeah, they didn't think of them dresses in the sense that they didn't think of them as feminine. (laughs) But it's just because that's how we see Mm -hmm. that is feminine, right? So this weird sort of way in which um, icons and stereotypes absolutely, right? The Venn diagram, they absolutely overlap in certain places uh, because of the simplicity. The sort of, the once you, when you boil things down, sometimes what you get is a stereotype, right? Um, And so, one of the play that I love to teach with this unit is Susan Loy Parks. Okay. Uh, Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World. Okay. AKA the Negro Book of the Dead. Um, because the characters are all iconic stereotypes. Um, and that's sort of the point really of, of the play is the ways in which they represent, um, themselves and their identity to comment upon Right, the way white culture has basically created them, used them, and appropriated them, and then sort of essentially killed them yeah. off. Right, um, and so it's it is a you know it's a brilliant play, but the language itself of the play is is really iconic, which is to say it she uses essentially these sort of um, phrases and you know, words put together in phrases, put together in speeches that really come in kind of sort of pieces of language, like strips of language mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that are themselves sort of immediately iconic. 
and require you to have this sort of ability listening to them to sort of envision, right, the iconography going on, how it's being used, what's being said, the story that's unfolding as the sort of iconography is created throughout the play, which is sort of super brilliant, of course. I wouldn't have expected anything less from her, to to be honest. Right. <laughs> yes, she is amazing and the best and super awesome. But it's a great way to sort of demonstrate, again, that because, right, stereotypes have, as I said, have so much trouble shedding certain meanings, but here is a play that sort of recontextualizes and uses them to comment on them, right? And... It's worth pointing out, right, we're going to talk a lot about art icons, because that's the obvious thing Mm -hmm. to go to. We have talked a lot about art icons. Um, But icons can also exist if you think of gestures. So Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Are great examples, right? They're iconic gestures. That's actually kind of a relevant example, because what I've read is that Hitler adopted that mustache style in part because Charlie Chaplin was so popular. That is yeah, so he actually wanted to capture the um the iconic the iconicness of Charlie Chaplin. Right. Chaplin. As a yeah. man of the people. Basically. Yeah. Presumably. Wow. And then Chaplin turned around and did the Great Dictator. Yes. Which is astonishingly brilliant. Which I believe and- it was screened privately for Hitler. Like it was banned awesome. in Germany. But I believe he saw it. Nobody well, knows good. what he said about it. Well. But I mean, we can probably guess. Right. But how fantastic. Yeah. Right? And the, and speaking of iconic, right, the scene where he dances with the world. Yes. Is is iconic in many ways, right? It uses an icon, first of all. Um, but it has, of course, itself become iconic mm-hmm. for what it says about that moment and that person, right? That's also something that I saw, you know, I haven't seen a ton of Chaplin movies but these moments where he breaks out into extremely like graceful balletic dance yes is something that seems to come up again and again yes so oh and we should give here a shout out to robert downey jr's portrayal of chaplin by the way yeah okay which is brilliant and wonderful <laughs> <laughs> in in chaplin yeah yes that's great but um yeah it really is there's a sort of phenomenal, of course, right? He and Buster Keaton, because it's so much about the way they move. Mm-hmm. Silent movies, right? So your gestures have to be communicative. The funny thing is that how many of those become iconic because they did them, mm-hmm. right? So things that you now have seen in movies, who knows how many times, they did it first. <laughs> and sometimes best, let's be fair. Yeah, yeah. But there's this sense of movement, right? The sense of gesture um, that... You know, they helped create the language for film as well, of course, because film was sort of new at the time. But certain aspects of that, right, that they do, and the ways in which movement, gesture, we all know it's iconic, right? Because again, you know, to come back to white supremacists, there is a certain gesture with your arm that you can make. Yep. (laughs) That is very iconic. There's also a particular uh, gesture of solidity with the the black people that people black make. Power. Absolutely. Black power movement. And the Olympics. Um, which is kind of like when I was at a, uh, a vigil last night, some people drove past and they're sticking their arms out the windows mm-hmm. of their cars. And it took me a minute to be like, oh, that's the black power fist rather than yes. the, like people were, uh, you know, sig heiling. Yeah. 
Well, exactly. In Black Park, the 1968 Olympics, right? Um, where Tommy Smith and John Carlos, yes, you know, did their did the Black Power fist arms raised, mm-hmm. and the athlete standing in front of them usually is a done- second place guy. Yeah, he usually right? is, he was yes Australian. Yes, and he usually doesn't have monuments. You know, I mean, he doesn't have monuments made to him, but also frequently monuments made to them. <laughs> mm-hmm aren't don't have him on them basically yeah that's the point he was an interesting guy because he wore like a pin yes yeah but he didn't feel like it was appropriate to raise his fist exactly but he wore the pin and he actually also did end up getting i think a fair amount of sort of backlash and stuff for it oh yeah Mm -hmm. he he wasn't allowed to compete again for the for the australian olympic team even though he was you know a really good guy at his sport yeah and so one of the things that's actually happened because um both of the african-american athletes said talked about him favorably and so one of the things that has actually happened since is that um a lot of the recreation monuments of that moment have started to add him back in which is kind of cool oh nice yeah as a because he basically right speaking of allies he was a good ally right and so um to acknowledge that basically yeah but absolutely right these gestures and it's nice, right, that they're they're sort of gestures and counter gestures, right? Mm-hmm. But so gestures can be iconic, and of course music, right? There's certain musical strains that are iconic. So sound can be iconic. The Coltrane changes, mm-hmm. right? In uh, what yeah. is it? Giant Steps. Yeah, um, that's the album. So there are all sorts of right. There are things that are sort of iconic, um, and some genres, honestly, are sort of more iconic than others we could say um horror is a mm-hmm. genre that really depends on the use of icons yeah melodrama right <laughs> um and one of, another one of the plays i teach actually i teach the two of them together the original melodrama by dan busico the actorun and brandon jacobs jenkins modern adaptation and actorun yeah yeah which is a Brechtian take on a melodrama, basically. But very iconic, right? He uses a large portion of the original play. I mean, about, I don't know, two-thirds of his play, maybe more, um, are wow. the words of the original. I mean, it is the original, right? But then he's recontextualized. He's added characters. He's had scenes, conversations. He hasn't actually added characters. He's taken away characters. <laughs> um, he has combined mm. some characters into, you know... Yes. Um, but all the original characters, but then he's added some scenes. To judge from yeah. um, all the other the other uh, plays oh, by yeah, Bukiko, yeah. I'm uh, aware of, yes. like London Assurance, he tends to have a lot of people yes. running around yeah. and coming on and on. Like, he writes yeah. kind of, I don't know, farcical yes. Of course, comedy. the actor in is a tragedy, uh, except in the London production, he was forced to change mm-hmm. the end. That's sort of for a different story. But, um, but I teach them together, right? Because... <laughs> Melodrama, of course, is iconic. So then, Brandon Jacob Jenkins taking that iconography and recontextualizing it in his play, right? Mm-hmm. So iconography, right? We cannot communicate without it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really required for right. communication. And I want to give another shout out to Carol Walker here because uh, her work is iconic. Also deals with iconography. The work that probably most people know is either the work that's known as the Sugar Sphinx. Or her silhouettes would be probably the other thing that people know um, the best. But the um, that's quite that's quite yes. a uh, 
statue. I had not seen that before. Yes, the, a subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. Or the marvelous sugar baby. Yeah. Yes. It's. I mean, we could devote a whole episode to it. <laughs> I teach it. Yeah. Um, okay. But she says the the um, title, the full title of the piece. Um, it was produced by Creative Time, and it says at the behest of Creative Time, Kara E. Walker has confected a subtlety or the marvelous sugar baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. Which was true. It was in this old refining plant that they were going to turn down. Yeah. Um, but a subtlety originally was the term for sort of a sugary, a sculpted sugary dessert, you know, that noble people had. Fancy, oh, fancy. Okay. Right? Back when sugar, the new world, slavery, right? Back right. when all this was newer. So it's a commentary on that. But also she has these brilliant, brilliant silhouettes, the series of silhouettes um, that comment on absence, really, right? The absence of African-Americans from, you know, history, but U.S. history, mm -hmm. um, in all of these places where, of course, they were tremendously, tremendously present, like the South, <laughs> right? But where they are absent from sort of the official histories. And so these brilliant sort of silhouettes she's created of characters who sort of appear in she's frequently used sort of real books or texts um and she puts the silhouette sort of you know in these contexts of so the absence suddenly becomes the thing you see okay right but it's the silhouette so it still sort of comments on that absence yeah so the sort of brilliant sense of icons um i want to bring up also flags <laughs> flags of course are icons yeah. for countries and I mean, literally now, because they're all emoji, too. Yes. <laughs> you know, but a flag is an icon. Of course it's an icon. Mm -hmm. You know, an actual flag is an icon. And this, again, right, flags are icons as a group. A flag is an icon. But, of course, individual flags are frequently very, very iconic, right? Some of the most recognizable flags in the world, the U.S. flag, the British, right, the U.K. Mm -hmm. flag. And the Union Jack, specifically right? The UK flag is the cross of St. George, which of course stands for England, mm -hmm. sitting on top of, <laughs> which you can see if you look at it, there's the red cross sort of with, surrounded by white sitting on top of the white cross for St. Andrew, which is Scotland, and the red cross. These are, and these are X's. They're, so they're technically saltiers, right? Uh, crosses, X's, crosses. Um, so the white St. Andrew cross for Scotland and the red St. Patrick cross for Ireland. Wales is not depicted. <laughs> I feel like Wales is always sort of given the short end of the stick. Yes, for sure. But there, the flag of Wales does have a dragon on it. Yes. Oh, Wales right? is so. super awesome and has tremendous iconography. <laughs> yeah. But in this right flag that once ruled the globe and the sun never set on it and all of those things, mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is what it is, right? It's these three yeah. sort of united countries, but really with St. George plopped on top of the others. So we have religious iconography, the saints, right? Which is where we do sort of tend to think of icons having originated, although that's not, that's just what we tend to use the word for these days. Yeah. And so the patron saints of each, right? Famously. <clears throat> but there's also this very interesting sense that looking at it, if you're not from the UK, <laughs> or if you are not religious, you might not recognize the iconography being used. But it doesn't mean you don't see it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you aren't conscious of the constituent parts that make up this specific icon. But somehow in looking at it, you are still being told, right? First of all, obviously religion. 
mm-hmm. right? Christianity, number one. Something that you're definitely going to get if you're part of a non-Christian nation that the British are colonizing, right? Right. You got three crosses, not just one, <laughs> coming at you. And more than that, of course, the, the cross on top is very, very much, right, the Christian. It's the red cross, right? Yeah. It's the cross of St. George. Um, so the way in which this really, really, really um, sends a message. And whether or not it's conscious, as I said, right, icons do so much work, it doesn't all have to be conscious. Um, but it's a very interesting point. And of course, the Confederate battle flag, which is what we think of today as the Confederate flag, also has a cross, right? It has the cross mm-hmm. of St. Andrew, that X, which, of course, the U.S. flag does not have a religious symbol on it. No. You know, I mean, stars can be, but that's not the point, right? Yeah. So a sort of interesting commentary, right? Um, Christianity. (laughs) Um, The idea, of course, that God was sort of on the side of slavery. And the ways in which that iconography plays into (laughs) um, what they were trying to project against the United States of America. Right? Um, That was one of the things. Um, Supposedly, and I don't know really how true this is, but um, one of the people who sort of helped design it, supposedly wrote that um, the reason they ended up with the cross of St. Andrew, not the cross of St. George, was because it is subtler, and they didn't want to antagonize Mm -hmm. Protestants, who are less sure about having a cross like that on their flag, um, or the Jews, who are part of the Confederacy. Hmm. Um, So to make it a subtler religious symbol. Yeah. But anyway, so the, the right, so this interesting way in which, you know, it's so easy <laughs> to ignore or argue about what symbols mean, but mostly you're in denial, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, just because something's historic doesn't mean it's appropriate, weirdly. Yeah. I remember in the early 2000s, I want to mm-hmm. say, you know, I had just gone away to college and I was getting various piercings and I'm feeling very tough. So I was kind of peripherally following this community that called themselves the body modification ah, community. Because yes. back then it was like a whole subculture instead of just being something that like everybody has a tattoo now and nobody right. cares. <laughs> yes. Um, but there was this group within them that were like super about reclaim the swastika. Wow. And I remember even writing one of them a letter and being like, Maybe it's not time yet. Like, maybe it will never be time. Like, I feel like this is just a little bit too loaded. I mean, if you're from India. They were, like, very earnest about, yeah, they were, well, they were, like, Canadian, which is the cringy part. Like, white dude in Canada who wants to get the swastika tattooed on his forehead as a symbol of peace. Like, bro, (laughs) come on. Nope. (laughs) And I feel like their movement has probably died or not gained steam. Right. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't work. Doesn't work. No. Can't be done. (laughs) Um, But it is, right? That's sort of that reminder of, like I said, right? They don't shed this iconography. And, I mean, people from India do occasionally. You know, I've read some blogs and stuff about um, what it's like to sort of not be able to wear your symbol. Mm -hmm. And not, not just, you know, um, people get, of course... If you're Muslim and, you know, 
different types of dress really receive a lot of prejudice, for sure. Yeah. But this isn't that, right? This is a symbol that you think of as one thing being seen as the exact opposite and basically the incarnate of evil, right? Yeah. And what that's sort of like. <laughs> now, to be fair, if I saw someone who was a person of color who, you know, I could figure was from somewhere in Asia wearing a swastika, I would know what they were mm-hmm. saying. Like, I would yeah. know why they were wearing it, right? Right. Especially because I've often seen it in, like, you know, those little wood bead mm-hmm. type of bracelet situation right. where you're like, yeah, it's a it's right. a thing. But. but, you know, it doesn't mean it's not still weird. And, of course, they recognize that, which is why they tend not to wear them around places like the U.S. or Europe, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, of course, it is weird to know that through no fault of your own, right, through white European appropriation, right. your symbol has basically been destroyed. Ruined it for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Which is terrible, right? That, I mean, appropriation is terrible, but that's not usually quite the way it works out, right? That's a particularly right. horrific example. Right. Gwen Stefani wearing a bindi or something is, is I mean, not the same. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, like they're inappropriate, whatever, fine, but you know, she hasn't she has yeah. <laughs> made it the incarnate of all evil. Yeah. <laughs> um so right, this is but this is sort of the issue, right? That icons are so powerful. They are so powerful because of what they convey mm-hmm. instantaneously. Right? And that's the problem also, is that I would know why that person was wearing a swastika, but of course, like you said, mm-hmm. I mean I would still already instantaneously have gotten that, like, cold chill. And they would know that. And I would feel bad. But also, you know, it's it's instantaneous. Like, you can't. (laughs) It's just there, right? And that's what makes icons so powerful. But also, in this case, (laughs) problematic frequently, right? Frequently problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, So, icons exist everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And if you think, obviously, like, Gravestones are iconic. Tombs are iconic. Some more so than others, obviously, like the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, But all pyramids, right, (laughs) as a group are iconic. You know that someone's buried there. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so temples, of course, right, religious places are iconic, but also use iconography. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we think of icons, particularly as religious, uh, and this is due partly to the fact of things like iconoclasm, Right, which is the sort of modern word for the fact that the early church, the sort of Byzantine church before um, the sort of around the time that East and West were splitting, and there are a couple iconoclastic movements, but sort of right this question about graven images, (laughs) our icons, our likenesses of people. Okay. And this comes up also in uh, Islam. Yes. A lot. And this right? actually is happening the same time that Islam is spreading. Islam is against the use of likeness of icons. Mm-hmm. It's not clear, though, that this is actually directly related to iconoclasm in Christianity. They happen around no. the same time, but don't seem to be directly related. It's something that's sort of, right, it's a conversation ongoing in the air, sort of. And okay. This is what happens. And of course, they, you know... It's not like they don't end up... It's not like they never interact. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem that they're initially, immediately, directly, directly related, right? The directly is the key there. Yeah. But one of the things that happens, of course, is that 
ultimately, so ultimately, in sort of the modern Eastern Church, Christian Eastern Church, um, two-dimensional icons are okay. So painted icons. Okay. So painted religious figures, right? Painted images of Jesus or Mary or so on. But not three-dimensional icons like statues. Wow. Right. Um, and this, of course, is different from Islam, where you actually do find medieval Islamic art that portrays people. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, Islamic art does sort of um, heavily um, stay away from people yeah. and go into um, sort of the incredible intricate design that has become famous. Yeah. But... Their calligraphy is amazing. Yes. <laughs> um, but also, I feel like... I mean, this is probably true for a lot of religious movements, that there's a lot of politics behind it, too. Oh, of course. There was a an article about the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan. Oh, yes. That talked about it, you know, like they justified it as iconoclasm, basically. But Jeez. at the time, it was really much more politically motivated. No, they'd been there thousands of years or whatever. Yeah. I mean, certainly hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, please. No. But um, I mean, anyone can justify anything if you put mm-hmm. it that way, right? <laughs> right. No, 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 no. Um, but uh, this is sort of the interesting point, right? Is that the sort of ultimate decision to go two dimensional, but not three? Because the idea that mm-hmm. a statue of Mary or Jesus or whoever um is like a pagan idol, right? Okay. Obviously, the Western Church does not have this conversation, or at least, I mean. It comes up occasionally. They come down on a different side, which is like, hey, let's make as many statues as possible. (laughs) Yes. Thank goodness. Because otherwise we wouldn't have like Michelangelo's Pieta, which we have discussed. (laughs) Right. The Pieta, of course, itself, Michelangelo is individually iconic, of course. That is the Mm -hmm. famous one. But any sort of mother holding a child is an iconic image, right? It immediately evokes Jesus and Mary. It has certainly been used frequently um, in art, in African-American art, (laughs) to depict the murder of African-American men mm-hmm. by white people. So, you know. This- Time Magazine cover this week mm-hmm. is that, I think. Oh. Like, icon of a woman holding a, there you go. a child, but the child is, like, cut out. Ah. Ooh, I'm going to have to look at that cover and see what it looks like. But yeah, that sense, right? Of course, it's, you know, this sort of iconic language is incredibly important because in one image you say something that again would take however many words to have said right yeah so that sort of instance of iconography um and the ways in which obviously also christ on the cross right yes there's the cover yeah yeah titus keffer did the yeah. He's famous, famous. Pretty gutting, honestly. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and what's even more interesting, it's similarly that sense of absence. Mm-hmm. But negative absence, the whiteness here stands for sort of the negative absence in a way that Kara Walker's silhouettes are, are black, mm-hmm. which evokes a positive sense of absence, right? So reversing the usual iconic imagery... And also stereotypical imagery, right? Of whiteness as positive and blackness as negative. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. It says a lot, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah, it's it's a great cover. But so, of course, Christ on the cross gets used. Um, right. The the passion. So this sense of right icons 
religious icons historically <laughs> mm-hmm. have a long, 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 long history. Um, so there have been small changes and some major changes, right? But you can mm-hmm. recognize um, biblical images going back a couple thousand years. Yeah. Right? And so that sense, right? There are certain things you recognize. So like Noah's Ark, right? Going back a couple thousand years, that is recognizable imagery. Christ on the cross, right? There's a lot of annunciations. Yes. That's one of the big you ones. You see the, or, uh, the wise yeah. men visiting the Christ child, right? These are all sort of iconic images. It strikes me that you see these in, um, you know, if you if you wander through... Like the Asia section of uh, the Art Institute, you see all sorts of particular images that are supposed to remind you of stories in the life of the Buddha. For example, mm-hmm. um, you'll see a statue. They do like specific hand gestures that I I think you would call iconic that are mm-hmm. called mudras. Yes, um, absolutely. So there's there's yeah. one calling the earth to witness, mm-hmm. um, which is a specific scene from uh, when the Buddha becomes enlightened. Yeah. And you always see, you know, the the Shiva dancing or the yes. Kali dancing. Or well, they're used sh- also you know. in um, dance. Yeah. In various types of, um, certainly in India, various types mm-hmm. of dance, those hand gestures are yeah. used. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, so they reflect back and forth with the, the art that you see. Yeah. And they, there's a lot of famous scenes from the life of the Buddha that you'll see paintings of. And often uh, the Ramayana, I think, is probably the most famous story that you'll see depicted. Sure. And then, you know, all of the amazing characters from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wander in and out. Yeah, it absolutely. It really is a cast of thousands. But yes. you're like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> right. the, the, the demons, the, you know, mm-hmm. the monkey god. Or- yes. And the point, of course, is that all of these figures have to be immediately recognizable. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, one of the interesting things about the portrayal of Christ on the cross is that there is a sort of shift. Um, the early ones are known as Christ triumphant. The Latin mm-hmm. is triumphans. Um, and around the year 1000. Um, so one of the early um, this is in Sarah Lipton's book, Dark Mirror. The Medieval Origins of Anti-Jewish Iconography. Oh. One of the early versions that sh- starts the sort of this change, or that's part of this change, um, that's made, it's a cross that's made after 1007. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the early forms of uh, Christus Patiens, uh, Christ's suffering, mm. where his humanity is suddenly emphasized by the fact that he's suffering on the cross, not his divinity by the fact he's triumphant over death on the cross and he looks happy and sort of conquering, right? The conquering hero. Yeah. Now he's the suffering hero. And of course, this is the one that sort of continues today, most obviously. Um, yeah. But the iconography connected to this, by the way, that cross belongs to um, Bernard of Hildesheim, who someone will come back to. He's a bishop. But of course, the cross itself is an icon. We've talked about it on flags. It comes in various forms, <laughs> in various shapes, um, because other people are crucified later. Um, but, you know, upside down or the cross of St. Andrew, because you don't want to be yeah. comparing yourself to Christ. Um, oh, there's the towel. They use a towel. Yes, for that's them, Francis. Right? So. He really embraced yes. the towel. Um, St. Francis is my fave. I asked a very old lady in uh, Perugia once in very broken Italian why yes. he had a towel. 
and I got an answer that I didn't, I don't right. speak Italian. <laughs> Did I mention that? But she, uh, I, I, uh, she, somehow he faced off with the, yes. the devil, maybe, well, or a bull, and he threw himself into a rose bush, and I believe the rose bush grew flowers from his blood, um, and I still don't understand why it's a towel, but it was a great <laughs> story to hear. That's awesome. Um, or, you know, interpret right. from her gestures and her very expressive yes. way of speaking. <laughs> um, intriguing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it starts off associated, you know, um, partly because, of course, the Greek letter letters are themselves icons, right? We don't sort of think of them that way, but they are, right? And oh, so, sure. of course, letters stand for things, sometimes for numbers, historically, before, you know, Arabic numerals. Mm-hmm. It's sort of more obvious in, like, yes. in Chinese, right? Where you can sort of see this one looks a little bit like a horse, mm-hmm. or this one yeah. looks like the sun. Um, but the Tao... A lot of people actually thought traditionally that the cross that Jesus was crucified on was a tau. I mean, that it was a T. That it was a T. Oh. <laughs> it didn't have a top part. Yeah. But like yeah, a capital it T. It didn't have right. a top part. And actually, you look at even a lot of modern paintings, it doesn't have a top part. And by modern, I generally mm-hmm. also mean like Renaissance, right? <laughs> but even more modern sure. than that, it frequently doesn't have a top part. So, and of course, remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, right? So originally, this does come from sort of a Greek background. <laughs> um, so the extent to which the Tau is sort of connected to the cross. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's sort of part of it, um, is that that idea. And so Francis, okay. you know, sort of, um, he heard, I mean, there are some great stories about St. Francis, but probably what happened is that um, he heard people, sort of some of the, Preachers or the Pope, even at the time, Pope Innocent III, talking about the Tao <laughs> and the symbol of what it meant, um, and mm-hmm. so on. So that's probably where he got it. Okay. But, right, it is absolutely, it's tremendously iconic. And a T, you know, to this day, I mean, a T, the cross, these are iconic, of course, still. Um, mm-hmm. And other aspects. So we've talked a lot about the Arma Christi all of which are part of the iconography of the passion, but are individually iconic, right? Um, so the nails, right? You see these images, right? The nail, a rooster. You see a rooster in a picture sort of with Jesus. You know mm-hmm. that that's the rooster that crowed three times, right? And Okay, so yeah. all of these things are very iconic. Um, the actual portrayal, the scene, even the people in the scene. So the Virgin and the Magdalene are individually iconic. The Virgin sort of famously in blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this famous, famous Chart Rindo from Chart Cathedral, um, oh, mid yes. sort of 1100s. That's incredible, incredible. Um, and then, of course, Mary Magdalene usually in red or pink, right? But the Magdalene's place at the foot of the cross is iconic as well. Um, she's there hugging his feet. She's always at his feet, right? She's the disciple at his feet. Um, and so to the point that, speaking of Francis, uh, when we get to the point where... Um, he comes along and he identifies strongly with the Magdalene and her place at the foot of the cross and Franciscan imagery, not just Franciscan, but sort of especially Franciscan imagery, um, tends mm-hmm. to put him at the cross also sometimes in place of the Magdalene at the feet of Christ. Right. And that sort of, mm. you know, it's not just a picture of Francis at the foot of the cross. 
right? If you're medieval and you're looking at this, you know that Francis has put put in the place of the Magdalene. Right, and the point is to compare him mm, to her. Okay. Right. Um, so even that level of iconography, right? Um, sort of along the lines of what Kendall Wiley does, except different. Mm-hmm. But that aspect, right? Recontextualizing right. things. But it's it's telling you a specific story. Yes. That like you have to sort of know the story that was there. Right. And then you can go, okay, this is what else it's saying. Yes. Um, I feel like we see this all the time in in modern cartoons. Yes, <laughs> of course. Like, yeah, the re- recontextualization of um, many famous works of, of art. Of course, you know it. It comes up constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and of course, individual saints or martyrs. First of all, a palm branch, right, which meant victory for Christ. That's Palm Sunday, right? The conqueror who's coming to conquer death. Um, martyrs usually had palm branches. So if you see someone with a palm branch mm-hmm. or you saw a palm branch on a tombstone, um, it meant that that person originally it meant that person was a martyr. Certainly, if you see that in a painting or something, it means that person is martyr. Yeah. Eventually, if you saw it on tombstones, it might just mean that that person had done a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, but it was supposed to mean that that person was a martyr. Um, that mm-hmm. that was the sort of idea. So that level of iconography also, of course, um, St. Peter has his key, right? He keeps the key. Right. And then wonderful, lesser-known saints, Apollonia and Teeth, St. Barbara and her tower, St. Lawrence and his, like, I don't know, what'd you call it? A grill. A grill. He's roasted on a grill. So he has a grill. Oh. So these various interesting... St. Sebastian was shot full of arrows. Yes, absolutely. Right? George and his dragon, right? <laughs> Which mm-hmm. is already a parallel of St. Michael fighting the devil. Okay. Oh, and we already talked about all of the paintings of, um, oh God, Saint. Who did we talk about? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, not Aquinas. Crap. Uh oh. Older than him. Who? Jerome. Oh, Jerome and his lion. With his yes. lion. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, right, you make them instantly recognizable because people know. They know the story, you immediately recognize, like you said, who that is, right? Mm -hmm. So the really interesting thing, (laughs) again, right, icons and stereotypes don't have to be the same, but they can overlap. So this is a word one Mm -hmm. super long, but do we want to quick get this out? Yeah, I lost track of time. Yeah, Yeah, let's let's keep going. Um, So... It's worth pointing out that racism and anti-Semitism have intersected in the West in interesting ways for a very, very, very long time. Um, and this goes way back um, to Christian Europe sort of um, frequently, not that they didn't know the difference between Judaism and Islam. Of course, Islam shows up later to begin with, but um, mm-hmm. frequently combining them or sort of <laughs> um, alighting them, right? Ignoring the differences between them. Right. And they're both the yes, other, pretty yes, much. So. Exactly. Um, and sometimes we don't have to know the difference. Right. Sometimes, the, I mean, they did know many of the distinctions. It's not that they didn't, and sometimes they recognize them, but frequently they don't bother mm-hmm. to. So, um, and of course, then that was also tied up with race because this is another point at which Jews are maybe Middle Eastern, but more sort of also seen as European because they've of course assimilated. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Muslims are definitely sort of North African um, or African at this point. Um, so that also is sort of going along and that, so there's a whole lot of stuff happening. Um, so these things overlap and interchange in various ways that are sort of unusual. And a lot of this is for a different episode, but I wanted to bring up, 
<laughs> when we're talking about icons and stereotypes and the ways in which they work, that of course, um, stereotypical betrayals. So as I said, right, Susan Lloyd Parks, Francis Jenkins, right, these are people who deal with them sort of in theater. Um, but artistic representations, if anyone's seen Bamboozled, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. I show my students certain scenes from Bamboozled. But the history of sort of racist imagery in the U.S., and by that, I really inc- I'm including really anti-Semitic imagery, which is based very much on a sense of um, even white Jews, which not all Jews are white. We should definitely point that out. Right. But the idea that even white Jews, of course, from the basis of white supremacy, are not white. Right. Jews are the invisible other <laughs> hiding within. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about that in – did we talk about that at the end of the last episode, that conflicted relationship that Jews have with whiteness? Because – Yeah. You sort of are and you sort of right. aren't. I don't know if we talked about it in, in the episode. Um, yeah, I don't remember But that's absolutely part. right. Jews who are white, which is, say, of European descent, are white from the perspective of white privilege, but for white supremacists are not considered white. Right? Yeah. And to the point that it's sort of the idea that Jews should be eradicated first because then you will recognize your enemy. Right? Because mm-hmm. Jews can pass, essentially. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, of course, yes, from the perspective of people of color, European Jews or Jews who present as white, um, of course, have white privilege and pass. Right. So this is this very sort of <laughs> ambiguous sense. But uh, anti-Semitic and racist imagery is very, very closely combined. Right. Um, it's very similar in many, many ways. And of course, racist imagery in the U.S. covers everybody. I mean... <laughs> nationalities right. people including people who of course today are considered white like the irish but who mm-hmm. right they famously oh, yeah. have to sort of claim their white 100 120 years ago yeah, it was catholic right catholics were not considered yeah. white um and today of course some of them are but some of them aren't right hispanic for example right many of many many <laughs> large hispanic population um but many many mm-hmm. of them are not considered white um and those who pass right like jews have a similar ambiguous sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is so this history, right, of representation, um, and in the Middle Ages, uh, the representation of Jews is one of the places that you sort of go to look at um, the beginnings of sort of this type of iconography that will become prejudiced, <laughs> uh, right. anti-Semitic slash racist, um, and so. We're back to Lipton's book here. Sarah Lipton, Dark uh-huh. Mirror, The Medieval Origins of Anti-Jewish Iconography. Um, that seems appropriate. Yes. And she has this great opening where she talks about <laughs> what is known as the Jewish hat. All right. So this is where we're going to end. Um, this is wonderfully a stereotype that we don't have today. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike the, you know, yellow cloth, which was a circle and then, of course, will famously eventually become a star. Eventually, eventually, eventually. Um, mm-hmm. This is something we're not we're not used to, really. <laughs> um, right. Uh, and so, the question was sort of, where did this start? All right. So, I her chapter is fantastic, and everyone should check it out. But I'm going to give a little bit of a summary. Basically, um, we've mentioned the the Greeks, um, the classical Greeks, thinking that wearing pants was ridiculous. Um. We haven't mentioned them, which we could have in this episode, as 
um, having been co-opted and appropriated for whiteness on the basis of white European culture, which is unfair because they were not. Much mm-hmm. of Greek cultures is important to white Western culture, but they're not white. <laughs> they're not thought of white today. They're not part of Western Europe, Greek, um, Greece. And so mm-hmm. this extent to which um, they were really got appropriated and whitewashed. Um, and things would be different if we really thought of large chunks of Western culture as based on a people that aren't white. Right. That's an interesting idea. I like that. Yeah. And there's been a specific, um, we'll put notes to this in the, you know, but um, there are some specific, um, you know, art historians and so on. You mentioned art history before we started recording in yeah. Germany, particularly, but um, who, when they sort of were figuring out in the 1800s that Greece was not white. They didn't have this sort of fetishization of whiteness. Um, all this white marble that we think of as white, white, white was actually all painted bright colors. Yes. Um, I love that. I love yes. the restored ones. Yes. But there are some specific um, comments, right, that certain art historians made at the time that basically said, no, right? Greek culture is the foundation of whiteness. <laughs> whiteness <laughs> is beauty. We are going to ignore this. Right. So they really, really did whitewash. I don't know if quite literal in the sense of, I don't know if they actually destroyed any of the statues, but um, they certainly <laughs> generally whitewashed all of this and buried it. Um, and to the point that, of course, today, most people still have no idea that all this stuff was painted in bright colors. Right? Movies and video games and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. Um, bit of an exception for uh, Assassin's Creed, Odyssey. But most sort of movies and video games tend to portray the ancient world as white, 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 white. Not just the people mm-hmm. who obviously weren't. Right. Same for, of course, biblical. We've talked about biblical portrayals already, right? Um, with white people as, you know, biblical Jews and so on. But, but you know, for Greece as well, that everything's sort of white, and this like gorgeous whiteness, this white marble, and all of that's fake. All right. So back to the pants. <laughs> There's this famous Trojan archer um, statue who's wearing pants, brightly colored pants, you know, in the restored version. Um, Mm -hmm. And he has this hat. And the hat is a sort of hat. It looks a little bit like a winter hat, like a woolly hat, Mm -hmm. but without the pom-pom, right? Um, But that sort of shape, not necessarily that material, but that sort of shape, right? Sort of a sort of conical but floppy hat, but conical. Okay. Pointy, pointy but floppy. So this is a hat that, you know, it's a Trojan archer, but this is a hat that Persians wore. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, Iran generally today, right? Yeah. Uh, but the Persians wore. And um, as we move into the Middle Ages, um, there was, this is sort of Lipton's argument, that there was a sort of um, sense that this hat was seen as um, kind of old world, Eastern wisdom, Right. Uh, and so one of the places you tend to see it was on the Magi, right? Okay. The three wise men who come, iconic scene, who come to visit the Christ child, that they would freely be pictured in these hats. Because mm-hmm. um, they're from the East, right? <laughs> um, and so this sort of vaguely sense of like Persian wisdom, these guys. Okay. And so one of the earliest, probably the earliest, because this is the earliest that she's found, uh, 1015, the second gospel book of Bishop Bernard of Hildesheim, who had that mm-hmm. cross, that's one of the early, oh, yeah. early versions of Christ's suffering. Um, he has this book made. He's a huge patron of the arts, and he has this right book made um, in 1015 that has several depictions of the Jewish hat, 
on the Magi, but also on some other Jewish characters. And she identifies this as the earliest depiction of the Jewish hat on Jews, mm-hmm. right? Which the Magi weren't, of course, right? <laughs> because right. Jesus and Mary are the Jews in this one, and the Magi are from somewhere else. Okay. So it's thought of as, right, this sort of Eastern wisdom hat, and some Jewish characters get it. And she argues that it's not at this point, in any sense, anti-Semitic. It's not even iconic yet for Jews, because only some of the Jewish characters have it. Um, that instead, it's a kind of reference to um, another pointed hat that has really caught on at this time, and that's the Bishop's Mitre. Right? Hmm. And so essentially, this hat has come to mean a sort of certain level of wisdom, um, a certain sort of hierarchy, right, in the church, mm-hmm. things of this sort. Um, and that that's really sort of where it started. And so as we move through time, <laughs> sort of through the 10 hundreds here, um, it slowly becomes more common for Jewish characters to be wearing it. And eventually, it becomes not just an iconic identifier of someone who is Jewish, mm-hmm. but also absolutely a stereotypical identifier of someone who is Jewish, right? That if you're looking to draw a stereotype of a Jew, that the hat, the pointy hat, has become iconic. And the most sort of important thing about this is that it's not clear that Jews were even wearing hats for most of the Middle Ages, right? Mm-hmm. Head covering, although it's a huge thing today, and has been for a few hundred years, it's not clear that most Jews in the Middle Ages actually wore head coverings at all. Sure. Even for praying, necessarily. So definitely not pointy hats. Right? So there's this slow progression of it from sort of probably this sort of stereotype of Eastern culture, right? And putting it on the Magi. Except that Persians did wear these hats. So mm-hmm. that is actual practice. Okay. So viewing so the Magi as having basically come from that area, wearing these hats to identify them as such, that it slowly gets transferred over to Jewish characters because of a sort of representation of wisdom or status within, you know, the church. Because remember, of course, thinking about, like, the elders in the temple at the time mm-hmm. and comparing them basically to bishops, right? And that, but slowly but surely, it sort of works its way into becoming this iconic, stereotypical attachment to Jewish characters. So the point that eventually you can look at a picture medieval manuscript, you're like, pointy hat, Jew. Uh-huh. Um, but this is why, because of course, at first glance, a pointy hat is not obviously negative, mm-hmm. right? In the way a lot of other things are, potentially, right? But of course, the context that slowly makes it a stereotype. So the ways in which, as I said, these things gain meanings, but they don't shed meanings. So they accrue, <laughs> but it's hard to get rid of stuff. Um, and so this slow burn, essentially, to what becomes this very iconic, but also stereotypical portrayal. Um, but something that did not originate that way, arguably. Um, this is mm-hmm. Lipton's argument, and I think it's great. Yeah. And so, right, and eventually, of course, you get the sort of horrific portrayals that we're all sort of used to, right? Um, but this sense, then, that this important way in which icons are used to communicate but it can be very dangerous because they do have this power <laughs> that can very easily become negatively charged. And so frequently in retrospect, looking back at images, uh, maybe we'll do some of this next, but um, it can be very easy to see in them stereotypes that we have today, mm-hmm. but things that at the time may not have been stereotypical or even iconic. 
right? But that by the time it gets to us, it has these horribly negative connotations. All right. That's our history. We went way over, but, you know. Yeah. It was important. No, I think it was good. Awesome. Thanks for it. That was a great discussion. And I hope that everybody learned something. We'll put all the pictures that we can in the show notes. So check out our website for that. If you're lucky, it should also just show up in your RSS feed with all the pictures and whatever. I don't think we have any specific announcements other than you can follow us on Facebook. Yes, stay safe. And uh, stay safe. Viva la revolution, as they say. All right. I'm going to say bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 